Today on Categorical Imperatives, we have a fantastic listener topic request about the strong influence that the Roman Republic had on our form of government, our constitution, and our founders, framers, and ratifiers. Hey, greetings. Welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your host, Locking Liberal, and I do want to thank you all so much for joining me here today. Now, if you are new to the program, I would especially like to welcome you. This is a podcast where we're going to be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events related to law, politics, and culture. Now, real quick, you guys can find the show's new webpage uh, linked down in the description. Uh, it's still under construction, but it does work. Uh, and along with links that will take you to uh, both the audio and video format of the show that I put out, as well as ways to support the work that we do here if you are so inclined, such as by becoming a patron over on Patreon, which also comes with a lot of extra cool little goodies that you don't get any other way. Plus, you can find links to uh, the articles that I write on many different aspects of law and politics for organizations such as the Libertarian Institute, the Tenth Amendment Center, the Mises Institute, and I even occasionally self-publish over on Substack. Now, what would you say if I told you that during his lifetime, George Washington was frequently compared with a famous Roman dictator? Furthermore, what would you say if I told you that the people making a comparison between Washington and a Roman dictator actually meant it as a green compliment? And what if I told you that this was a comparison that Washington himself did absolutely everything in his power to encourage? I'd say, come again? And then I'd laugh because I said, come. But thank God that's not the case, huh? Well, actually, that fascinating anecdote is going to be one of a number of avenues that we will be exploring in this video as we lay out the massive role that the historical Roman Republic and the political philosophy of classical republicanism played on the founding of our nation. Now, as I mentioned up front, this video is actually discussing a fantastic viewer-requested uh, topic that I recently got. I, I really wish I could thank the person by name who sent this to me, but the email came from an unknown email address, unknown to me at least. Uh, it, it had no identifying information with it, so I, I guess all I can say is whoever you are, uh, thank you so much for the topic suggestion. This is a really great one. Uh, and I actually have a copy of the email here. I, I've typed up verbatim just so you, you guys can get a feel for what was being asked. So he said, I'd like to suggest a topic for a future video. The Roman Republic was a substantial influence on the creation of the United States Constitution. Please discuss the specific insights the founding fathers imported from the Roman Republic. You might also discuss modern-day America's susceptibility to authoritarianism vis-a-vis -vis the Roman Republic's failure to reform after the Second Punic War, as discussed here, and he then links to this video, uh, it's over on YouTube. I've, I've seen the video a couple times now since he sent it. It's a really great video. Uh, and so uh, we, I have this linked 
down in the description. We're not going to be talking about this part of it today. So you have a chance to go watch the video and get a, a feel for what he's talking about. And then we'll be looking into it uh, probably in the next episode. Now, this is, is a suggestion I, I love. Um, so I, I've had a number of other episode topics already lined up uh, when I got this email. And I, I love this so much, like, I actually sidelined everything else that I was working on to make this one my priority. It's a really great suggestion. I have always really been fascinated with the history of the Roman Republic, uh, which is, I, I mean, why I have finished every single episode of this show from day one uh, with the immortal words of Cato the Elder, Cartago Delenda Est, Now, this will probably end up being broken down into three different videos. Uh, and while that may initially sound like overkill, I, I assure you this is actually going to be whittled down from a topic that is so vast and so interesting that it really could be its own ongoing podcast. Ancient Greco-Roman history is a massive subject to try and tackle. And even just looking at one particular aspect of it, like we are going to be doing today, which is talking about the tradition of uh, Roman republicanism and the system of mixed government. Uh, these are topics that the historians and philosophers of uh, Roman times wrote entire volumes on. We're talking about hundreds of people writing hundreds of volumes at thousands of pages each. And then there is also something of a rediscovery or at least a newfound appreciation for these ancient Roman republics that occurs during the Enlightenment. And this includes the work of people such as uh, Machiavelli, uh, Harrington, uh, Sidney, Rousseau, and uh, most important for our discussion today will be Montesquieu and especially his 1748 treatise, The Spirit of the Laws. So today I want to discuss the specific insights that the founders imported from the notable people and events and values of the Roman Republic. Then the next episode will be a focus on the influence that the Roman Republic had, specifically on the drafting of our constitution and our system of government that it established. And then part three, we will be directly addressing the second part of his comment, where he asked about modern-day susceptibility to authoritarianism and the degree to which that can be traced back to failure to reform following the Second Punic War, so I guess first off, when talking about the historians and uh, philosophers of ancient Rome, uh, you know, who are we talking about here exactly? I, I just want to give you an idea of a couple of the people who, uh, whose, whose works I am getting a lot of this information directly from. And these are people such as Livy, Plutarch, Tacitus, Herodotus, and Thucydides. Now, during the time of the founding, most people who received a good education got what was known as a classical education. And this was an education that put a huge focus on understanding the history of the Greek and uh, Roman republics. And so just to give you some idea of 
how entrenched uh, these ideas were with our founders and how familiar they would have been with all of these concepts. Uh, I think a good example to start with is Alexander Hamilton. When he entered King's College, which is now known as Columbia University, in 1773, he was expected to have a mastery, and this is to just get into the school, to have a mastery of Greek and Latin grammar, to be able to read orations from Cicero and from Virgil's Aeneid in the original Latin, and to be able to translate the first ten chapters of the Gospel of John from Greek into Latin. Now, when James Madison applied to uh, the College of New Jersey, which is now Princeton, uh, he had to already have read and been familiar with Virgil, Horace, Justinian, Caesar, Tacitus, Lucretius, Fradius, Herodotus, Thucydides, and Plato. And mo many other key figures in the American Foundation receive a very similar education to uh, these that are really heavily revolve around uh, the ancient Greek and Roman classics. So this typical education, which uh, I, I think I mentioned was called a classical education, generally begin at the age of eight. Students who went to school were required to learn Latin and Greek grammar and to be able to read the Roman historians such as Tacitus and Livy, as well as the Greek historians Herodotus and Thucydides, and to be able to translate the Latin poetry uh, of people such as Virgil and Horace. Now, several of our founders, including John Adams and John Hancock, attended Harvard. The sole academic requirement for admission to Harvard University in the 1640s was as follows, quote, when any scholar is able to read Tully, Cicero, or any such like classical Latin author extempore and make and speak Latin in verse, uh, prose suo marte, which means by his own power, and decline perfectly the paradigms and nouns and verbs in the Greek tongue, then may he be admitted into the college, nor shall any claim of admission before such qualifications. But what about those who were not college graduates, uh, people such as George Washington? How influenced were they by the classical education? Well, in Washington's case, he had very little formal education, actually, but he did admire the classical thinkers greatly. He also insisted on a classical education for his stepson, and even for the most basic schooling, classical influences were pervasive in the schoolroom, but they, it really didn't stop there. Uh, even what Americans heard from the pulpit back in those days was often imbued with all manner of reference and allusion to classical literature. Now, today, I, I think it's not uncommon to hear 
uh, some say that Christians should shy away from the pagan authors of antiquity, but this is an idea that the founders, uh, including some of the real uh, sort of Christian firebrand thinkers, people like Cotton Mather and Jonathan Edwards, uh, would simply have considered absolutely preposterous. And in fact, all of the great Christian theologians and thinkers of early America would have been steeped in the classics. Not only did they think that a classical education was consistent with a Christian vocation, they considered it absolutely essential. So let's talk about how these classics influenced the founders. If the founders were steeped in classical thought, how did it affect the way that they thought about the founding of our new nation? Well, for one thing, it would have inculcated them with a respect for the lessons of history, which is readily apparent in the writings and debates on how to construct the American Republic, such as we see from Patrick Henry when he said, I have but one lamp by which my feet are guided, and that lamp is the lamp of experience. I know no way of judging the future but by the past. So they really combine sort of the annals of the ancients, uh, for example, uh, of what worked well in government and what did not. They knew well before the philosopher George Santayana was born to say it that those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. In fact, simply turning to the records kept in the Philadelphia Convention of 1787, and the subsequent state ratification debates leaves you with no doubt that regardless of one's education or one's strata in society back then, pretty much everyone who engaged in political debates had and understood very well the history of these ancient republics. They would all have tended to have read Polybius, Aristotle, Cicero, Livy, Thucydides, and many others, and they used the ancient luminaries to frame and illustrate their ideas before the assembly. Now, in these heated yet fairly erudite debates, uh, along with uh, things such as the Federalist Papers, uh, which fairly uh, pilulate both with subtle classical allusions with which Madison, Hamilton, and Jay assumed their readers to be uh, rather familiar with, but also to uh, direct References to some of the ancient Greek leagues, such as uh, the Amphionic League, the Achaean League, the Aetolian League, the Lycian League, and many others that were formed by ancient Greece in order to achieve political and physical security. So let's talk a bit about what classical republicanism is then. Now, classical republicanism developed in the Renaissance and was inspired by the governmental forms of writing of classical antiquity, especially the writers such as Aristotle, Polybius, and Cicero. And classical republicanism is built around a few basic concepts. The real key ones to understand are civil society, civic virtue, and mixed government. Now, next, I, I think we need to talk about and understand what liberty meant to the founders. Uh, because the fact is that liberty had 
many different meanings over the course of history. Uh, however, from the period we're talking about here, uh, from the Renaissance to the Enlightenment, uh, it commonly appeared as an element in the intellectual tradition that scholars would refer to as classical republicanism. Uh, and this it, it really flourished mostly throughout Europe between the 16th and 18th centuries. Uh, some of its most notable exponents were people such as Machiavelli, who, just for the record, is absolutely one of the most unjustly demonized individuals in all of Western history. Also, people such as Algernon Sidney, James Harrington, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who is unjustly well-respected despite being one of history's greatest monsters. Now, classical Republicans drew heavily on ancient models and authorities, but they did tend to match these models with new concerns uh, and examples drawn from the world around them to create a distinct ideology that can be recognized in various forms throughout the history of European political thought. So, liberty. Liberty in the classical Republican context must be distinguished from both its modern and ancient meaning. When reading the text of the early modern era, it is important to remember that liberty did not always mean what it meant today. Nonetheless, the liberty of the classical Republican, classical Republicans in some ways was an ancestor to what we might today consider the modern libertarian tradition. Now, at the same time, uh, ironically, it also played a role in shaping modern collectivist ideologies as well. Therefore, classical republicanism is uh, of crucial importance in the development of all modern political thought. Uh, and that goes for collectivist ideologies such as uh, communism, just as much as it does for republicanism uh, and things such as that. Now, despite the name, classical republicanism did not, as you might expect, oppose all monarchies necessarily. A republic denoted to its adherents what we might call a constitutional government, uh, the rule of law, or simply good government. And this notion was thought consistent, uh, it could be consistent as a component of monarchy, uh, specifically within something like a constitutional monarchy. Now, the classical Republicans concerned themselves far more uh, intensely with the proper forms and duties of government, and they were always critical of both monarchs and other government actors who overstepped their prerogatives. And this concern for limited government is a feature that classical Republicans share with the later classical liberal tradition, and then even today with modern libertarians. Yet a fuller account of the classical Republican worldview reveals differences as well as similarities to what I would consider something of the modern libertarian view. So, for example... Classical Republicans did not emphasize or even really often write about ideas such as the natural rights of individuals. Yet they overwhelmingly agreed that good government was exceedingly fragile and that the vicissitudes of history could sweep it away for no foreseeable reason. 
Classical Republicans often invoke the medieval image of the Wheel of Fortune to describe capricious historical change, and moreover, the reinvigorated the study of history that came with the Renaissance, and this convinced them that uh, polities often suffered both good and bad turns of fortune. For example, Machiavelli's most famous piece, The Prince, was written to address the proper rule of a state whose republic had been overthrown, and in which the key question was how to best save what could be preserved. No classical Republican would view the collapse of a republic as surprising for them. Republics tended to do just that. Alright, next I want to move on to talking about a particular figure in the Roman Republic of great importance, Cato the Younger. Now, to get an understanding of why he was so important, uh, consider this, that during the terrible winter of 1776 in Valley Forge, when the Continental Army was faced with something of a triple threat uh, of exposure, starvation, and rampant disease, to boost morale, Washington himself personally arranged a performance of Joseph Addison's famous play about Cato to raise morale because he knew everybody from the soldiers to the militias to the officers would have known about the historical Cato that are found in the works of historians such as Plutarch and Livy. So just who was Cato the Younger? Well, Cato was a Stoic, which means he voluntarily subjected himself to violent exercise. He learned to endure cold and rain with a minimum of clothes, ate only what was absolutely necessary, drank the very cheapest wine, and as the first triumvirate began to seize control from the Roman Republic, Cato took on what he really considered tyranny itself in the form of Julius Caesar, and after commanding the troops at the port of Dyrrachium when it became clear that Caesar was going to win the civil war and that there was no chance that the Roman Republic would possibly survive, uh, in Utica, Cato did not. There we go. In Utica, Cato did not participate in the battle, and was unwilling to live in a world led by Caesar, and refused even implicitly to grant Caesar the power to pardon him, and thus he committed suicide in April of 46 BC. Now, that night, <clears throat> that night, Cato sat and read Plato's Phaedo. He then called for his sword to be brought to him. According to Plutarch, Cato attempted to kill himself by stabbing himself with the sword, but failed to do so and only injured his hand. Now, Plutarch wrote, Cato did not immediately die of the wound, but, struggling, fell off the bed, and throwing down a little mathematical table that stood by, made such a noise that the servants hearing it cried out, and immediately his son and all his friends came into the chamber, where, seeing him lie, weltering in his own blood, a great part of his bowels out of his body, but himself still alive and able to look at them, they all stood in horror. The physician went to him and would have put in his bowels because they were not pierced and would have sewn up the wound, but 
Cato recovering himself and understanding the intention, thrust away the physician, plucked out his own bowels, and tore open the wound immediately expiring. Now, Plutarch would write that on hearing of his death in Utica, Caesar commented that Cato, I grudge you your death as you would have grudged me the preservation of your life. So, for Cato, suffering and even dying for liberty was better than living in tyranny. This obvious correlation between Cato and the sick, starving, freezing soldiers suffering at Valley Forge, suffering specifically for liberty in the avoidance of living in tyranny, is a topic that would have greatly resonated with every single man there. All right, now let's talk about Cincinnatus. This, I, I really think, is the ultimate synecdoche between the founders uh, and the heroes of the Roman Republic, and it has to be George Washington's desire to voluntarily give up ultimate power at a time when everybody expected him to hold on to it. This is what gave him uh, the nickname, the American Cincinnatus, uh, and you'll find out why here as we get into this. But this was significant because uh, this really only made him the second con uh, conquering general in all of Western history to win a war in which it is expected that the commanding general will take over ultimate control of civil power in a time of peace after being seen as the person responsible for bringing about that peace. But he instead voluntarily chose to relinquish power. Now, I say he was the second person to do this. That is because the first person to ever do this was the famous general from the Roman Republic, a man known to history as Cincinnatus. And this is why in his lifetime, Washington was frequently called the American Cincinnatus. Now, if you think that these two statues look alike, uh, that's because... The one on the left is an old statute of Cincinnatus resigning his commission and handing back the fasci, which was a symbol of military dictatorship power, to the Senate. The one on the right is George Washington deliberately posed as an American Cincinnatus resigning his commission to the Continental Congress. Now, the Federalist Society has made a fantastic video about the relationship between Cincinnatus and Washington, uh, so I thought it would be fun to watch that together. Can you imagine Julius Caesar willingly turning back power? One of the lessons that we get from Roman history is these very strong military leaders who translate that military power into governing. World history prior to the American Revolution always ended with the successful victorious general taking power. I suppose we all have heard, either in high school or somewhere, that the founders had an absolute horror of executive power, having 
dealt with this tyrant, George III, during the revolutionary period. But it is a curious thing that they then handed to their new executive very great powers, powers in some, in some ways equal to or exceeding the powers of a king in, uh, in the British system. So at the founding, one of the visions of the executive power was that it needed to be vigorous, that it needed to be sufficiently strong, um, invested with enough power, they would be able to counterbalance the other two branches of the federal government. The founders were trying to achieve a balanced government, a constitutional government, but one that had a strong executive. They had solace in the fact that as they were getting this new government up on, the, up on its feet, up and running, that George Washington would be the one exerting that influence. Washington became president uh, on April 30th, 1789. After he becomes president, he writes a letter to a British historian, which is to say he writes it to history, if you will. Few understand the role I had to play. And he uses this wonderful phrase, I walk on untrodden ground. He, he's aware this is something that's never been done before. It's new. There were no precedents um, upon which to judge. So basically everything he did, he was doing from scratch. Um, every office that he was creating was being created from scratch. Every statute that Congress was passing was being created from scratch. Washington is, is very mindful of everything he does, but especially the, the precedents that will be set by his every action, uh, including you know, what he wears, how he acts, who he meets with, how he uh, does virtually everything. As we get into to Washington's second term, this question naturally comes to the fore. We've never done this before. The assumption is essentially that Washington's going to stick around. He's not going anywhere. Indeed, Thomas Jefferson, in, in one of his letters, assumes that Washington's going to stay for life. Because that's the natural thing to do, and that's historically what it always happened. History is littered with examples of, of military men, one thinks after Washington, of Napoleon Bonaparte, for example, who seize power and are reluctant to give it up. There was, a, there was an enormous concern um, voiced by the myriad anti-federalist authors at the time that whoever was given this executive power was going to be effectively a monarch. In history, the idea of, of getting power and then giving up power is not only non-existent, but it's, it's, it's absurd. Why would anybody do that? The whole point of getting power is not to give it up. Cincinnatus was a patrician, one of those uh, fathers of, of Rome, Republican Rome. He had held the consulship. And then he had retired to his farm, his little four acres of land and his plow, until 458 B.C. Rome had been besieged by uh, an invading tribe, the Equi. And so the senators go to Cincinnatus, and they appeal to him to come back and, and lead them. They gave him complete autocratic power, total autocratic power anything he needed in order to win this war because it was an existential threat to the Republic. Cincinnatus, uh, this 
retired general and public servant. Uh, the very next morning, assumed command of the army and was given this six-month dictatorship and in a, in a brief 15 days, a mere 15 days, vanquished the enemy, uh, returned Rome to a peaceful footing, and then returned the dictatorship. He could have legally stayed on for six months and enjoyed all the perquisites of, of virtually absolute power. But he didn't do that. Cincinnatus was a, was a thunderbolt um, of shock and awe at the time. This story this, uh, really becomes a legend, uh, this uh, kind of a mythical hero of Rome, which, of course, is a great example of uh, kind of Roman virtue, the, the virtue of the, of the Roman, the citizen of Rome, uh, who serves the Republic, who does what is necessary for the Republic, but then does not become a dictator in the sense that we understand the term, which is keeping power, holding power, and maintaining power forever. He uses it, but he gives it back. Washington was uh, called by many people the Cincinnatus of the West, and the parallels are actually quite striking. There were some attempts to co-opt Washington into either seizing power from the Congress uh, by military force or leading uh, such a venture. There were evidently some uh, movements to try to make him a king following uh, the revolution. Washington was adamant and uh, in fact furious that anyone would try to foist such, uh, such a plan on him or on uh, the colonies and then the new nation and, and said in the strongest terms that this was an anathema to everything that the revolution was about. At the end of the war, Washington is going to go to the Congress, uh, which at the time is meeting in Annapolis, and he's going to resign his commission. It's, it's actually a, an important ceremony. He literally goes there and gives them his sword. His first great resignation. And so when the King of England, King George, was told about Washington's plans to resign his commission and return to his farm in Mount Vernon, King George said, if he does that, he will truly be the greatest man on earth. The only model that uh, they had and uh, that was known because they were students of, of classical history, they knew it from their Cicero and, and from other stories of the ancient Romans, the only model they had was this, this model of, of this Cincinnatus figure who seemed so mythical and impossible that you couldn't even believe it. Someone who would, who would come from the farm, take power, save the Republic, give it up. Um, and so Washington takes on this, uh, this sense of the legend. He's the Cincinnatus figure. He's the American Cincinnatus that understands the, the role of power, the importance of power, especially in, in foreign affairs and military affairs. Um, but Washington also understands that a republic requires the giving up of power. Washington, I think, had never really intended to serve as long as he did. 
he wanted desperately to get back to Mount Vernon um, and like Cincinnatus to retire to his plow. Instead of going to Congress and, and, and deciding to, to get to resign or to, to decline a third term in person, um, he goes straight to the American people. When he writes this address, it leads with, to the people of the United States, my fellow citizens. It was a marvelous moment in the history, not only of the United States, but of free government around the world. A peaceful transition of power in, in a regime of uh, representation where the people elect their representatives. Uh, it, it was an unusual thing, and perhaps it's still an unusual thing today. One of the things that I think you see in both of these people is a true understanding of civic virtue, a true understanding that in fact none of any of this, the conflict, is about them personally. It is instead about the people, the protection of their liberties, the protection of their rights, the protection of their sovereignty. And I think that one of the great lessons we can learn from Washington is um, what it takes in a leader what kinds of virtues does it take in a leader? What kinds of public virtues need to be present in a society to sustain a free government? It's a fragile thing, democracy, a Republican form of government. It's a fragile thing. The comparison between Washington and Cincinnati is appropriate, understood in the right context, uh, which is to say that I think the comparison is not to say that, that Washington is somehow this kind of mythical, classical figure that's wearing a robe, you know, put up on Mount Rushmore for us to admire. The true Washington, this, this, this figure, this dynamic figure who leads the revolution and then leads by becoming the first president and then leads by stepping down and shifting his own authority to the Constitution itself. That's the true story. That's the actual Washington. Uh, and, and that not only is an amazing thing by any historical standards, but is probably the most significant and powerful example of Republican citizenship that this country has ever produced. Your fame thus spread to distant lands May envy's fiercest blasts endure. Like Egypt's pyramids it stands, built on a basis more secure. Time's latest age shall own in you the patriot and the statesman too. Now hurrying from the busy scene where thy Potomac's waters flow, may thou enjoy thy royal reign and every earthly blessing know. Thus he whom Rome's proud legions swayed, returned and sought his sylvan shade. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. Now, that is going to do it for today. Uh, I do hope you enjoyed the episode all, all together. Uh, I, I will be back in a few days, uh, certainly a day or two, with the next video in my series, No Place Like Rome, uh, where we will be discussing classical republicanism and its immediate influence on American constitutional government specifically. Uh, so before you go real quick, uh, if you're not subscribed to the channel, take a second and do that. Uh, if you like the video, click the little thumbsy uppy button. Uh, if you dislike the video, uh, click the thumbsy 
downy button thing. Uh, leave a comment. I always love hearing what you guys have to think about these episodes. Uh, and, yeah, I guess all this left to say, uh, like usual, is De Linda S. Cathago. Freddy 